Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we're talking about racial justice and social change. And on today's show, we are talking with Anesha Roy Chowdhury, who wrote the book, The Marginalized Majority. You know, one of the most life-giving lessons I learned, or that I have learned, about pursuing racial justice is that we actually don't need everyone to join us or to like us. It's been such a liberating uh, lesson that I've learned. And this is a part of the central argument in Anesha's book. And that's why when I came across her work in A Resistance Guide about nonviolent struggle, I just had to speak with her because the way that she articulates this idea and that she lays it out is something that everybody needs to know. It's so beneficial. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Anesha. Hi, Anesha. Hi. How's it going? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing really good. Um, I am doing especially great knowing that we're going to have an awesome conversation today. Um, It's my honor to have you on the show, and I'm so excited to introduce our subscribers to your work. I'm really happy to be here and to be talking to you. Well, I so I have your book, The Marginalized Majority, and I I knew that I needed to get it because I came across your work in the Unprecedented Action Guide. And one thing that just really struck me was you say that we're already a majority. And I wondered if you could tell us about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this book came out of, uh, you know, right after this 2016 presidential election, Mm -hmm. I really started to get worried. I mean, alongside of the panic, I think a lot of us were feeling as a journalist, I had covered the two terms of the Bush administration and kind of seen how cynicism and disaffection had grown over those years. Mm -hmm. So I was really worried about people starting to feel like they were just wanting to bury their heads in the sand and, you know, wait it out and, you know, just, I think people were feeling really hopeless. Mm. Uh, and, and alongside of that, I, I feel like we were seeing a lot of, uh, headlines about mm. how we were more divided than ever before as Americans. But when I started to dig into that, cause I was like, is that really true? You know, cause mm. obviously when we look at the actual number of votes, Trump did not win, uh, on that level. So I was like, okay, let's actually get into this. And the more research that I did, the more it became clear that there really is a clear divide. But Mm. the divide is not primarily between Americans. It's between what the majority of Americans want Mm. policy-wise and what politicians, uh, you know, obviously Republicans, but also Democrats, the the general platforms, uh, what they they were offering. And Mm When I when I started to look at that, I was like, "This is this is a completely different way of viewing things." And if we all understood that that is where the real divide is, it just opens up a, a completely different way of of thinking about what kind of power we we have. Mm. Yeah, when when I read that, that's exactly my reaction was, "Oh my gosh!" It completely has shifted the way that I think about building unity and division and all of that and. I wonder why do you why do you think that we typically that a lot of people don't know what you're saying that we're that we are a majority and that the division is not where we think it is. 
I think a lot of it is uh, media responsibility. There's, there's, there are just certain, I mean, narratives are so powerful. Storytelling is like the way that we navigate the world and understand it. And so because we have this two-party system of Democrats and Republicans, because people tend to think and the media propagates this notion that there, you know, that there are just two sides to the equation, it can inflame this, um, what really amounts to like a caricature, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and once those narratives take hold, it's really hard to combat them. So for instance, one of the things that we kept fixating on uh, in the aftermath of the 2016 elections were uh, the, the white working class, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, this is, this is the reason that Trump has had so much power. This is the reason that we're so divided. But in reality, if you look at who makes up the working class, it's primarily people of color. So, so this notion that, and and also there's, there's a real problematic presumption that the white working class is this monolithic entity. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's, there's a lot and, and, and this gets into too, also the fact that there's been a real decline in unions over the years. Yeah. So because of that, we're less inclined to be able to see with, with more clarity that there is a real commonality among the working class and that people who can speak to the working class, which is, again, uh, primarily people of color, uh, but there's much more unity on offer if we, if we look at it in those terms. Instead of, instead of feeding this really, um, again, it's a caricature, this, mm-hmm. this notion that there's this white working class that is this monolithic entity and they're all racist and they're all like MAGA hat wearing people, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So I think that that's a part of it. Uh, and I also think this, um, there, there are other interesting examples. So I think watching um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez rise to power was a really fascinating mm-hmm. case study. Yeah. So, you know, that was considered, the media called that like a really big upset. They were like, how is it possible that she won? She was polling really behind numbers wise. But if you look at why she did win, it's because she was reaching out to people who don't usually come to the polls. So mm. when, when we see polling numbers, which is again, a lot of what we're fixated on, yeah, um, that like who we're polling is people who, are, who have come out to the polls before people who are likely coming out to the polls. Right. So you're seeing a very particular um, fragment of the population. Whereas what Ocasio-Cortez did was focus on bringing people out to the polls who don't normally come out. And when she did that, she won. Mm. Um, so that's another way in which I think we, we, because of these ingrained narratives, we lose sight of the power we have if we actually appeal to voters who have felt disenfranchised for a really long time because they don't feel like those standard Democratic and Republican platforms are speaking to their needs and concerns. Right. And so that brings up a question for me, too, because when in that narrative, I hear you saying that, you know, we're really reducing a lot of more nuanced, you know, stories and groups and all of that. And one of the things as you talk about, you know, us being a marginalized majority is that I think some people hear that and go, oh, so does that mean that like all of us are Democrats, you know, (laughs) like is the majority, Mm. is the majority that we're talking about, you know, uh, Democrats, because again, we have this binary story. And so I wondered if you could speak to that too, like, I don't know if that question's even clear, but <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's it's a it's a great question, right? Because it's like, who am I talking about when I'm saying the marginalized majority? Exactly. 
Um, and I think it, it's it's very much not um, along these lines of Democrat versus Republican. What I'm encouraging people to do is, because again, when I was doing research for this book, it's like the alignment, the real alignment that we see is a- along policy issues. So mm-hmm. affordable education, healthcare, uh, you know, a, a living wage. We're talking about really in healthcare, you know, like we're talking about very fundamental things. Um, and, and when, you know, and even with things like the, um, green new deal now, like if you look at the, the people who, the number of people who support that, when Mm -hmm. people have been asked whether they support certain components of that, um, across, um, like political party lines, like how people identify when they're not told, when they're not asked like, Hey, do you support the, uh, green new deal? But they're asked, do you support, you know, measures that would ensure that everyone has a job that would help support a, uh, support climate justice would, you know, ensure that the, the planet would not, you know, end in a fiery <laughs> death, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, it's like, these are, these are not, these are not contentious things. Yeah. And so, and, and, and the majority of people do support those right. when we, when we stop fixating on these labels. Um, and so I feel like when I'm talking about the marginalized majority, I, it's, it's an, it's a slightly aspirational term, right? Mm. It's, it's a, it's a, I'm encouraging people to look at the many things that we have in common, specifically among people who are marginalized, because the fact is that the percentage of, you know, like historically in this country, they're, uh, the, the people who have held power, um, are, are white men. Right. Um, but when you look at the percentage of white men in this country, um, it is, I'm trying to find the exact stat cause it's in my book here and I forgot, but I think it's a little, it's like 51% or less. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm sorry. That is that is overstating it. Hold on, I'm going to find it. It is worth it. <laughs> um, I think I remember you mentioning 31 or 32 percent. Is that yeah? Right? I think yeah. I think that's about right. Yeah, like it's and I love that I just inflated it because that's just what we do, right? We just assume <laughs> that they they must take up so much more space than they do. Um, yeah, and, and and that's you know, and that doesn't that doesn't parse the the percentage of white men who don't identify as heterosexual or cisgender, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you, when you think about the, the numbers of people in this country who are marginalized, who are immigrant immigrants, who are queer, who are people of color, mm-hmm. uh, we're already the majority. And then if you think about the, you know, white progressive allies mm-hmm. that are out there, it, it, we, we have a tremendous amount of power. Mm. Uh, particu- particularly if we can identify those commonalities among us and, and move forward. Well, I think you bring up something interesting about collective power, and we've mentioned it a couple times. And I, I, I would love for you to say something about how power fits into this conversation about being a marginalized majority. Because, I mean, this this conversation is going to be published to a lot of people who are not activists and don't identify as activists and and don't want to be organizers. You know, a lot of a lot of us are talking. They're like, well, you know, I want to be a part of the thing. I don't want to be an organizer, though. So, you know, I think that for some of us, we hear, OK, so what? Like we're a majority. What does that mean? Like millions of us filled the streets after Trump's election to say, hey, we think that we need better leadership in this. But um, what is our power as people? I guess that's a very long winded way of saying mm. I don't think that we always understand that we are powerful. We think of people like the president, the attorney general, you know, 
the Congress people, like they have power, but we don't think of ourselves as being powerful together. Could you talk about how power fits into this this uh, conversation? Yeah, I mean, one of the most fundamental things that I I hope we can recognize more and more is, you know, there's a there's a it's a cliche, but the phrase the personal is political. Yes, is so so freaking true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, when we're talking, and again, when I was talking about how the real divide is is not between Americans, but between these platforms, the policy platforms mm. of Republicans and, and Democrats, and 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 what the majority of Americans need and want, that's what it comes down to. And I think what we were just talking about of Occupy Wall Street too. It's like when we recognize that the fact that uh, we are losing our homes. Yeah. Or that we have to make a choice between groceries and rent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we're struggling with childcare, when um, you know our employer, our employer insurance won't cover our birth control. Mm. Like these are these are personal issues, yes, but they are profoundly political. Right. So I think to me that is like the 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 primary seed of recognizing where our power is. Mm. And that is recognizing that these issues are not just our personal burdens to shoulder. And that when we are talking to our friends and family about our struggles, that is not just something that is for our community and our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, like that just expands outward. And if we are struggling, that means that there are countless other Americans struggling. Mm. So it starts, it starts at that community level and it starts with recognizing that, you know, making your voices heard and, and going, you know, it, I know that some people have a hesitancy, um, to think of themselves as activists or political. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the key is like, it's like whatever you're, you know, there's this, <laughs> there's this notion in, um, you know, that, that I, that I use a lot in, in my, my teaching life, which is. Uh, I teach storytelling and, you know, it, it's, it's a lot about creating a, as safe a space as possible, but also pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, but not, not insanely so, right? So it's comfort plus one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you already vote, but that's pretty much it, what's your plus one? Mm-hmm. Is it, is it um, making a call to your congressperson? Mm-hmm. Is it, um, is it meeting up with the indivisible group near you so that you can be plugged into opportunities for making your voice heard locally more regularly? Mm. You know, and I think the the beautiful thing about the political moment we're in now is that there are so many opportunities to to make that plus one step yeah. um, with without it being um so much of a burden. I know we're all, you know, so many of us are strapped for time, but there are ways in which just like a few more minutes per week could really make a difference. And it's not just about you. It's not just about like being able to change something immediately. Mm. It's about recognizing that this, this is a relationship that we have with people in power and that they work for us. Wow. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think with plenty of good reason, we don't tend to think about it in those terms because mm-hmm. it, it, it does feel like this space in which power is just going on in a back room mm. um, and that we are just, 
you know, passively subject to have to like struggle through with whatever the realities are dictated by that backroom power. Yeah. But I think what we've seen more and more, especially these last few years, is that is that we, when we call people in power out, especially locally, right? There's a way in which Trump is there and it sucks and we can't, you know, get rid of him immediately. Mm-hmm. But but like our focus doesn't need to be on him. Our focus needs to be on those pillars of power that are supporting him. The mm-hmm. people propping someone like that up. Mm-hmm. And those are people that we have an incredible amount of access to. Mm. We can show up to their offices. We can call them. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, they, you know, many of them can be shamed. They rely on us <laughs> to remain in power. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think that's the key is, is, is going to those, to those people um, that can be shamed, that do rely on us, that, you know, rely on us for, for their vote. Right. And calling them out. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a a lot of people underestimate the fact of what you're saying, because I hear you describing, you know, everyone just participating in society, right? Like just just taking like some basic responsibility for the world that we live in and taking an active role in history just by adding one thing, right? Yeah. And um, I think that we underestimate that power. And it's like, a mind bend sometimes as well. Like I remember it was like an epiphany when someone first, you know, when I read Gene Sharp and he's like, leaders can't collect taxes and make laws and print postage stamps and milk cows all by themselves. Right? They're, they're yeah. depending on all of us to keep the gears moving <laughs> of society. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, there's, there's this, you know, there's the sense that how much power do I really have and how can I really affect things if it's just like, me and some of my friends and family. Yeah. And, you know, in, in my book, I get into this a little bit more. The, the fact is that some of the most effective protest campaigns and resistance campaigns throughout history were small numbers of extremely stubborn people. Mm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. so if you look at, say, ACT UP in the 80s, mm. this was, you know, a movement of primarily gay men who had been influenced uh, organizing tactic-wise by, you know, the feminist movement. Mm-hmm. But they they were able to uh, be enough of a nuisance where there were protests where were sometimes just a, a few dozen people. But because, oh, wow. yeah, but because they were so stubborn. And, and I bring up the fact, like, this is like, at, the, at that time, obviously such a reviled population, mm-hmm. you know, like, and, and such a demonized population. Um, and yet they were able to, with those consistent protests, even if they were small numbers, force the hand of government and the FDA to do more research and come up with better drugs to treat HIV AIDS. Wow. So I think, I think the message there is, you know, it can feel abstract sometimes, like, well, how, like, what should I do politically if mm-hmm. I don't think of myself as a political person? But again, just thinking like, what are the ways in which I struggle on a day-to-day level because I don't have the resources I need? Right. Mm-hmm. And what, and how can I, how can I push back? How can I make my needs and concerns known alongside of, you know, a few dozen other people who have the same mm-hmm. needs and concerns? Mm-hmm. And there's an incredible amount of power 
in simply that awareness and simply uniting yourself with a few other people who share the yeah. same concerns. I know that I know that you mentioned, you know, before we started recording, you know, that this is something that that you've been thinking about. And I've been thinking about too, is that I think sometimes we we're thinking inside the box so much. You know, mm-hmm. did you have anything you wanted to share on that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember during the sort of primary era before the 2016 elections, talking to a few good friends of mine who, you know, when it was when the debate was Bernie versus Hillary. Mm-hmm. And there was there was a lot of sentiment around that time um, among people who actually really liked what Bernie was saying. Mm-hmm. But they were like, but he's not electable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we're kind of, we're seeing that happening again now, which is frustrating because I think um, it's so early on and to reduce the conversation to electability. I mean, electability is important, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to, we don't want to be foolish. We want to know how will this person stand up against someone else? Mm -hmm. But but when we, when we flatten the, the, the conversation to simply that, yeah, we're censoring ourselves right? Like we are stopping ourselves from having the real conversation, which is who is speaking to my needs and concerns. Mm. Also, we're not passive here. We Mm -hmm. can, we can engage with these candidates. We can choose to support them. Right. We can, um, ask questions Mm -hmm. like, why are you not addressing this? These are Mm -hmm. my concerns. And and that is that is what democracy is. That's democracy in action. Mm. So to and I feel like the way that we tend to interact with elections, as though it is kind of this horse race, and we're just sort of sitting, observing it, <laughs> and kind of you know like placing our bets Id- <laughs> idly, you know, like mm, I don't know, like. <laughs> like, like I say, Cham- Champ has more of a, a chance to win here. It's like th- this, this is this is like our future, you know. So when I see another, you know, article about uh, Buttigieg, for instance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and like how um, he's like the the great hot new thing. It's like okay, like what are his policies? Right. You know, like, why are we talking more about him than Elizabeth Warren, who seems to every single day have a new, very clear policy stance? Mm, mm-hmm. And a lot mm-hmm. of times I think that comes down to like, well, she's not electable, which again, mm-hmm. electability is important. But but let's not <laughs> skip over this, right. like the, the heart of the of the conversation here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing that the story makes me think of is how we relate and respond to people that we would say are, you know, not aligned, you know, opponents, right? Like, you know, those of us who care about racial justice, for instance, have a bunch of people who are not interested (laughs) in, in racial justice. And I feel like in this story, like you all, you all start focusing on the song that you're singing. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it's not even, I mean, it's, it's direct in a way, but in another way, it's like, we're not going to argue points with you. We're going to focus on us. And I wonder in this idea and, and what you're in your work and what you're trying to get out there to people, what do you think are the implications for how we respond to people who just have no interest in 
um, being a part of that, you know, those policy, that policy agenda that we all might agree on? Yeah, I think um, it's sort of a multi-tier process in my mind. I feel like the most important thing to recognize is, again, that there are that the majority of us do share a lot of these concerns and that if we if we focus on reaching out to those people who say aren't voting or who aren't looking at you know the the frustrations and challenges that they face in their everyday lives as a political issue that can be addressed if we reach mm-hmm. out to those people who are our potential um you know like ally adjacent right they're like right there waiting us for us to just say hey this is something that we can together take on. That, mm-hmm. I mean, like, just that alone, and, and like, you know, preaching to the choir gets a bad rap, but I think there's yeah. real power to recognizing <laughs> that um, we need to form a choir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, again, we, we uh, because of the narratives that we've been fed, there's this constant fixation on reaching across the aisle. Like, what does that mean? Who are we reaching out to? When we reach out to someone who is, say, uh, an avowed bigot, (laughs) is that the best use of our energy? (laughs) And when I say it's a multi-tiered process, I do think someone should be reaching out to that avowed bigot. Yeah. But I don't know that it needs to be uh, people of color. I don't know that it needs, you know, like, I don't know that that is a, a burden that we need to shoulder primarily. I think our white allies, that is that is where they step up. Yeah. Mm-hmm, sure. Um. And 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 so I think, yeah, I just think that we need to be, <laughs> you know, fixating less on reaching across the aisle and more on, you know, just reaching out to yeah. our allies. Yeah. I'll sh- I want to share a story with you as you say that when when I was like I was young, I don't remember how young, but I, I, I mean, I'm old enough to to know like that. To remember when the internet was like a novelty, like where yeah. it was like, oh, like wow, like we can get online and talk to people in other parts of the world, right? So yeah. the World Wide Web, rather, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a the World Wide Web. So um, the a- the America Online period. Oh yeah. So I'm a young person on interested in computers, and I somehow I stumble across this white supremacist web website, and I grew up in church. Um, I have two theological degrees. That's just kind of been my life, and so he was using all these Bible verses to explain his bigotry. Mm. And I remember feeling so sorry for this guy <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a kid. Cause I'm like, oh man, this guy can't read the Bible, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> so I sent him an email <laughs> trying to explain to him, you know, like that I think that he misread a, a bunch of this stuff. And so he and I go back and forth for months. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I realized this guy's never gonna change his mind, you know? Yeah. And I don't think that people who suggest that people of color reach out to white people who are not interested in doing this kind of thing, they don't understand that they're just asking us to do that, right? To spend an enormous amount of time on people who are not movable. Yeah. You know? So I always say to people too, like as a former minister, like people who talk about preaching to the choir as though they were a bad thing have never been a music director in a church. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like the choir needs preaching. <laughs> I love that story, both because I mean, how sweet and beautiful that that you know, young you felt pity. 
Yeah. <laughs> rather, rather than anger, you know, like I, I think that that um, that's such a sign of real empathy and compassion. It's like, oh, you 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 poor fool. <laughs> let, let me let me help you out. Um, but but yes. And and I, I'm hopeful that the, the broader conversation about race and racism is shifting a little bit so that people are recognizing that people of color expending even more of their emotional labor on those kinds of debates and arguments. It's just it is not our job. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like if, if, if someone is committed to doing that work, like I'm not going to tell them not to, you know, like God bless you for doing that. Right. But, but I feel like we have a limited amount of time and energy in this world mm-hmm. and to spend it. Um, yeah. Like putting energy towards a, a, an argument that is like, it's just the wrong argument. Yes. Um, and I think, pushing forward with the world we we know must be mm. uh you know it's going to take people some of those people time to catch up so fine let them you know they'll catch up eventually <laughs> um meanwhile we're going to be building a world right yeah yeah i hear that anisha i've kept you way longer than we said we were going to talk so oh no problem i, I totally lost track of time <laughs> i want to i want to <laughs> ask you one, one more question sure that i ask everybody and that is, uh, what keeps you hopeful? Mm, that's a great question. I think, so one of the things that I do uh, is I teach storytelling to high schoolers around the city here. Mm-hmm. And it's personal stories. So, you know, it's basically an after school thing where over the course of six weeks, uh, we just meet for a couple hours and watching the shift in these teenagers from the beginning of those the of that 6 weeks to the end is the thing that gives yeah. me hope and 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 in the shift there is you know you walk into the room with a group of young people who have been told directly indirectly for their short lives so far how to be who to be mm. uh in the world you know and by the end of this process, which is really just about <laughs> encouraging them to take the floor, to take the mic, to yeah. tell us what their story is and what they're passionate about and what they feel and what they want. Mm. There's so much power in that. And, and yeah. I remember leading a, you know, it culminates in like a, a story slam, right? Where they perform mm-hmm. their stories in front of an audience. And I remember that there was a, a story slam for my students just a couple days after the 2016 elections and I was supposed to host it. And I was thinking to myself, I do not know how to do this. <laughs> I do not know how to bring the energy and hope right now. Like I'm feeling mm-hmm. really broken and uh, mm-hmm. you know, but I felt like I, I owed it to them. Right. So I show up, my students are there wearing homemade t-shirts that say like smash the patriarchy. you know and they're all fired up they're not broken at all and uh it was just this beautiful moment of of realizing that like while i felt broken and defeated in that moment in those first few days there are other people especially younger people who have that raw energy ready to go and it just allowed me to relax because I was like oh it's okay like I don't have to bring the energy every day 
we yeah. can we can pass the baton we can support each other here because this is you know this is a, this is a marathon this is a long-term struggle and just yeah. knowing that um that we have each other to lean on in that way and that yeah. you know the young people of this country are <laughs> um you know they're gonna they're, they're bringing the fire yeah yes yes yeah I so kind of recognizing that um it's not my job to have control over everything and lead everything it's to it's to recognize where that power and energy is and support it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um that that keeps me hopeful that is so beautiful thank you for sharing that with us yeah well, Anisha, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you for being so generous with us and sharing about your work. I am so excited for uh, our subscribers to listen to this conversation. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Anesha. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure that you check her out at Anesha.com and also get her book, The Marginalized Majority. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by our fantastic supporters at Patreon. Thank you so much for your support of our work at Hope and Heart Pills. And as usual, we're going to give you the uncut extended version of our conversation with Anesha on Patreon. If you want to join our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. And if you're not already subscribed to our weekly newsletter, go ahead and join us at andrerhenry.com and click join the movement and you can get our email list that goes out every week offering practical insight on anti-racism and social change. And you'll never miss an article. You'll never miss a new song when it comes out and you'll never miss a new podcast episode. Well, that's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time.